All right. All right. Henry, go get the thing. Should I make Micah close his eyes or something? I don't know. I feel like... Um, well, this sounds, this sounds like a good time to do an ad read. <laughs> this podcast is made possible by Policy Genius. Face it, you're going to die one day. Don't leave your family or loved ones bereft. You can go to policygenius.com and compare insurance rates, such as life, disability, and renter's insurance. Use code word ELON and sign up to get a share of Henry's life insurance payout as soon as he accidentally meets his end. Oh, Holy yeah. moly, are oh, you joking me? It's a banjo. Okay. It's a banjo. You got a banjo? Yeah, bro. You can't say that word. The, the... the finger picky yeah, things. Yeah. You're going to go to a guitar center and get you some. Dude, that is awesome. <laughs> now you have to make a theme song on the banjo. Yeah, Henry. Since we actually haven't recorded any of the podcasts yet, how about you do hit the theme song? On the ba- I don't know how to play any chords. Just band. just play something. Play what? Uh, the theme song. I don't, I don't even know what the. Henry, fucking... gotta hit it. Hit the theme song. <laughs> just stand by the mic and just jam <laughs> on the banjo. I don't, I don't know how to play it. Oh, he's playing Game of Thrones. <laughs> Um, welcome back to This Is Rocket Science, the oh, yeah, official so cool. Columbia Space Initiative podcast. I am one of your hosts, David Tibbetts. And I am the other host, Henry Minowski. Uh, so, uh, so we don't really have a script, but we have some questions from Reddit. Yeah. Uh, that people actually asked us on Reddit. So, so I put out a post saying... I run a space podcast. Does anyone have any questions? And to my surprise, people actually responded. You want to read the questions out? Sure. Let's just get into it. Uh, I haven't screened these, which is probably a terrible idea. Um, It's Reddit. Uh, This person says, I'm a huge fan of rotating habitats, space mining, and manufacturing. Uh, I would like to see some real architects. Oh, okay. Well, we're not architects. Hey, Micah comes from a family of architects. That is true. I would uh, like to see some real architects discuss discuss, discuss building such structures, uh, things like using connected water tanks on the outside to balance the spin and protect from radiation. Uh, Then there's like five other questions. Um, Yeah, I guess we could just start there. We don't have any architects, but you want to... I don't really know nothing about interstellar water tank connectivity, yeah. but like... I, I think like much of an architecture thing. It's not an aesthetic thing, per se, more of just a functionality thing. Yeah, water is uh, super, super good at blocking radiation, um, and also we need uh, it to exist, and also uh, you can turn it into rocket fuel pretty easily. Uh, the point like, is, you break down your water into hydrogen and oxygen, you could burn that for rockets. Yeah, hydrogen and oxygen was used in the, the you know main fuel tanks of the, the space shuttle so i don't know henry what's your uh, preferred form of rocket fuel oh my god oh, that's just that's such a good question david um my favorite rocket fuel is probably uh unsymmetric dimethyl hydrazine with dinitrogen tetroxide that's probably my favorite <laughs> that's that's what we call um a good old-fashioned hypergolic bipropellant basically it's you know you get you have two things like so let's go back to the other example with hydrogen and oxygen 
hydrogens, your fuel, oxygens, your oxidizer. You put those two together and then you need to light them. You need a spark. They won't automatically combust. But you could have, you know, hypergolic fuel like the, the two that I just mentioned that have super really long names. You put those together. They're so reactive. They will immediately combust with each other. And that's super convenient because it takes a lot of, you know, the complexity of an ignition system out of your engine. It's also um, hydrogen and oxygen need to be super low temperature in order to um, be in a form that's favorable towards combustion. So they need to be like liquid, you know, minus 250 C or something. They need, yeah. Um, but something like dihydrogen tetroxide, uh, hydrazine uh, can be at room temperature. So that also takes a lot of complexity out of it. Uh, the issue is that uh, it's toxic. It's res been responsible for the deaths of like hundreds of scientists, mostly in the Soviet Union because they didn't really give a about their engineers. What else does Reddit have to say for us? Um, okay, we have two more. This next one seems kind of like a mica type question. <laughs> um, I would like to know about antimatter and its use in cancer research. No, it actually makes sense. <laughs> that makes sense because if you get antimatter, cancer, then the anti-cancer cancels out the cancer cancer. <laughs> I have a feeling it's more... <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, if you have anti-cancer... If you, you form cancer out of antimatter, then you yeah. cancel out the cancer. Exactly. Dude, maybe the solution to cancer is to make more cancer, but it's not cancer cancer, it's anti-cancer. Oh my god, we've cured I, I can see one in, like, bet Micah, between why, one in 50 reasons why that's a terrible idea, but... Why? Well, the number one thing is that the, the reason why antimatter is such, like, a good idea from the science fiction point of view is that... There is no more energetic reaction than that of matter and antimatter. So if you created like even any significant number of antimatter atoms and you intentionally collided them with matter, like you would just blow a person apart. Hey, like but that's like what this. Cures the cancer. Like, <laughs> it's out of the body. Yeah, it's out of the body. Yeah. I mean, you but... can't die of cancer. You die of uh, vaporization. True. Spontaneous combustion. Okay, but what if it's not you, that spontaneous material? Yeah, induced or yeah. Michael, what are you gonna say? What if you just let it the antimatter into the body real, real slowly, so you only had like little explosions, not big explosions. You friendly and like introduce. Okay, I'm, I'm, I think you missed the point, Micah. You put one, you put one anti atom in there, right? Next yeah. to one regular atom. I, I don't know how. I wonder what like the, the yield you would get. Yeah, what's the like, yield of antimatter? Look at yeah. that, Henry. During this intermission, I think I'll read out an ad. Oh my God. This podcast was made possible by Audible. Audible is the leading provider of audiobooks. They have over three hours of audiobooks to choose from. Visit www.audible.com and use code word ELON at checkout for a free audiobook. Recently, Micah heard about one of those books. Tell us about your experience, Micah. Good. Micah says it was good. <coughs> Remember, use code word ELON at checkout for a free audio book. Yeah, so antimatter. Still can't find the answer to the question we were asking at this point, but uh, I'm on the Wikipedia page, so... Um... Well, maybe it's not useful for cancer, but like, what else? Do, what else do we want to cancel out in the universe? Like, what's some other like some other atomic nuisances? You know? Oh well, also um, here's here's another issue. That, that I can see from the Wikipedia page. If we wanted to, to solve cancer with antimatter, NASA says that it would cost about $62.5 trillion per gram 
to create sixty-two trillion dollars per gram. So uh, well, I mean, not happening. Need, like a whole gram, you know? Like maybe only need like a million gram, and then it's only sixty-two billion dollars. You know? <laughs> That's only three times NASA's budget, just for one person <laughs> to be cured of cancer. <laughs> that seems pretty reasonable. Wait, how much is it per gram? Uh, sixty-two point five trillion, according to NASA, and that's for anti-hydrogen. That's for like so. If that's for one mole. Yeah, one mole. Yeah, one mole of anti-hydrogen. Sixty-two five hundred billion million thousand the ones times uh, six point zero two times ten to the twenty-two times ten twenty-third dummy. <laughs> I don't know Avogadro. That's three. What's well, like less than a cent per atom? Okay, so so we just we just bashed it for being ridiculous. According to Wikipedia, which is very trustworthy, which uh, like non-jokingly I think is very trustworthy. Under uses of antimatter, the first one is medical, and it says matter antimatter reactions have practical applications in medical Im imaging, such as positron emission tomography. In positive beta decay and nuclei loss, blah, 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 blah. Antiprotons have been shown within laboratory experiments to have the potential to treat certain cancers. So apparently it's a real thing. All right, so it's only like a cent for 100, 100 million protons. I guess not that bad. That sounds pretty good. That's pretty good. I mean, 100 million protons is a cent like for literally 100 million nothing. protons? That's not that bad. Um, you could use it to make a bomb, too. Oh, perfect. Of course. <laughs> One kilogram of antimatter would be equivalent to uh, the SAR bomba, the largest nuclear bomb ever tested ever One by the Soviet Union. One kilogram of antimatter is equivalent to about 27,000 kilograms of nuclear bomb material of plutonium that's like and a, uranium. That's like a 60 quadrillion dollar bomb then, isn't it? Yeah. Doof. So that's kind of pointless, but but yeah. I guess it's, it's, not as, it's more effective, you know, weight-wise. But cost-wise, cost it couldn't wise, be... Yeah. Just keep giving me uranium, come on. It's actually because it is so... You can, like, mine it and, like, not die or whatever? Oh, yeah, I, I own radioactive minerals. I guess its half-life is, like, whatever, two billion years. So yeah, so really... you're not, you, can, you can hold it and be fine. Probably yeah. shouldn't breathe it. Yeah, it's probably not a good idea. Yeah. No, but there's really cool ones because uranium is so common within the Earth's crust that can actually form compounds, like, in enough of an occurrence to actually form minerals. The other ones like thorium and a couple other, you know, isn't, naturally occurring radioactive minerals. Isn't one of the reasons why the Earth's core is so hot? One of the, there's like a couple reasons, probably like the biggest one is the fact that like yeah, the core is decay. crushed. But radioactive decay, isn't that a big one? Huge one. How does that even like, how does that work? It's just like there's a lot of radioactive materials. It's emitting well, a lot of radiation. Because it's so much denser than the regular material, it all got to sink down to the core. Hmm. So because it's all in that area, you're decaying. Like, that even plays a factor just going deeper into the Earth. I forget what the ratio is from meters deep to heat, but just going underground, it warms up versus the surface because of the radioactive material down there. I've also, I've seen a lot of stuff like on Reddit and, and stuff and of people being like, we can go to other planets, but we can't even go into our own planet. Like, this is dumb. It's a conspiracy Clearly, we could not go to the moon Henry, because we can't even go to the center. Planet? We can't even go to the center of the Earth. How you we think we haven't been to the center of Earth yet? Oh, trust me, we have. Well, didn't we go there? We found dinosaurs. Yeah. You go there, everything's upside. Isn't that the one like where everything's upside down? 
Haven't you guys heard about oh, Australia? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, yeah, it's it's incredibly difficult to to go anywhere close to the mantle just because I don't know what the biggest the the Russians dug like I don't know how many miles or even if it was a mile, sure. but uh, eventually they got to the point where uh, it was so hot that it would just melt their drill. Like their drill was made yeah. out of like titanium. It didn't even matter. Um, it would just be melted by the earth. So no, for sure. Absolutely. Go ahead, Micah. Could I feel like a source of heat, or like a source of like yeah. energy, like someday we just like yeah. super deep volcanoes and stuff. That's just the mantle sort of just you know, <laughs> not just mantle, coming out, and that's a lot of heat. That's energy. Not the oh, they, uh, the okay, Russian, whatever. Yeah. The Russians dug like seven point six miles. In that's a lot. That's a weak yeah. sauce. Seven point six miles. It barely touches the crust. And then they just put like one little like sheet over the hole. I think I saw that on the internet somewhere. It's like there's just like it's a like sheet. You tower. open it and it's like six miles down. <laughs> Someone just slips and falls. Rip. I have a gravity question. Go ahead, Micah. Love Let's it. say the Earth wasn't like. I just said E R F as Earth, but uh, let's say there was like no hot stuff. Let's just hypothetically take it out of the picture. No hot stuff, then I wouldn't exist. <laughs> At the core, though. As we could just build this tunnel from here to, like, China or wherever is, like, opposite. There's no point in North America that where you did, but continue. Okay. <laughs> we come out, like, Swaziland or wherever. What? Surprisingly geographically accurate. No, I'm just kidding. I don't, I don't <laughs> even know. Swaziland has since changed its name. To Eswatini. To Eswatini, yeah. Okay, we come out... What happens gravitationally like when we're at the center? Because like everything mm. goes net, like towards the center. Ooh. At so, the center of the earth? Yeah. yeah. I mean, okay, so so what do you what are we proposing here? So you're saying you just dig a hole straight down and then you jump in? And you go Okay. If you jump in, at the center, I guess all the gravitational forces would more or less balance out and there would be no gravity. But you'd be traveling like I don't know how many, ten like thousands of miles per hour. So you just you go right past the center. <laughs> okay, but if you were so to jump, what, what, would you like start going fast and then slow down when you got to the center and then speed back up as you end? I think you would well, you would accelerate. You just cancel it all out. Well, terminal velocity. That's assuming there's air resistance and then there's a whole different set of problems that we're gonna have. Okay. <laughs> I'm just asking if there's a speed change as you go from... Yeah. Yeah, you increase. You're going to be accelerating all the way until you reach the shell in the center. And then inside of the shell, there's no um, gravitational well, field. And then you will... there. Uh, no, there's no <coughs> acceleration or deceleration. Oh, you're talking about like the hollow Gaussian circle. Yeah, yeah. This, thanks, Physics 1600. So, yeah, there, there's, a, there's another meme that we can consider related to this problem. If the Earth were hollow... And well, it is so. Hot wool. I mean, I'm not serious. Okay, okay. For, a, for a second, I was like, "Holy!" <laughs> I believe you when you say stuff. <laughs> you just gave me an aneurysm. Um, okay, so. <laughs> um, so so say the Earth was hollow, which it isn't. I've just learned the Earth is not hollow. If it were hollow, um, but it is that. <laughs> if you went inside of the hollow earth um because uh 
other parts of the earth are like okay so so imagine you're floating in the middle of this this hollow earth no does matter where you are change or no so you're saying that no. all the mass is still on the outside all the mass is still on the outside cool um but but either way no matter where you are in that hollow earth there is no gravitational force you're floating no matter where you are you could be right you could be all the way on the edge of this no gravitational force just because there's a bunch of matter that's closer to you pulling harder but there's a lot more matter farther away from you pulling less hard so it would balance out no matter where you are and there would be no acceleration i forget what the question was originally oh yeah what do we, how do we get here reddit what's the next reddit question henry uh, we only have one more Reddit question. Oh well, yeah, what's well, the next one? <laughs> I'm triggered. Now. I didn't say what the next two. I said what's the next one? The Earth I'm is triggered. Hollow. I'm triggered. Um, okay. Uh, I'd love to know more about the KBC void. Okay, so this is this is a classic meme in astronomy. Classic astronomy meme we have here. Um, classic. Basically, so if you like. If you went to the grandest scales of the universe, the type of things that you're exploring in frontiers of science, if you're doing that, like cosmology, like like big picture, the as we know, um, the mass distribution of the uni universe is almost perfectly uniform, sort of, kind of, like it's very on biggest scales, very uniform. That being said, there's large parts of the universe where there is nothing nothing at all there's no galaxies um like there's very very little matter um and the biggest one is the kbc void um which is this massive comparatively empty region of space uh it's about two billion light years in diameter um which if you think about it is is crazy because the observable universe uh has the 13.7 billion light year radius so that's like a decent chunk of that and there's just nothing in it, um, which is kind of to be expected, like statistically. So this isn't like some crazy mystery. But yeah, it's I guess someone on Reddit wanted us to talk about it. Um, and there's literally nothing to talk about because there's nothing there. So we are in part of the KPC void. That is something that I didn't know. Hey, are you enjoying the show? If you want to get updates or see our memes, make sure to follow our Instagram account at This Is Rocket Science. If you are really, really enjoying the show, leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts. If you like the show, what are you doing here? Get out of here. Leave. You're not welcome anymore. Love us or leave. Um, Henry, what's love for the episode? We were going to talk about um, the Apollo landings um, because Apollo 11. The documentary came out and it was really good and I enjoyed it. So we could just go chronologically through Apollo and talk about, or we could talk about the space race in general. What does the audience want? Space race, space race. Oh, so just do all of it right now? Dude, we, why don't we, we do like a, we do like a time rundown of the space race. Like each right. Apollo mission gets like two minutes. Go, go, go. All right. So if we're going to talk about uh, the space race, I guess a good place to start is Sputnik, which was the first satellite ever launched into space launched into space by the Russians in 1957. Uh, basically, it was just like a small metallic ball with like an antenna on it. Um, but it was a really big deal because you could, if you looked overhead at the right moment, at, you know, into the night sky, you would see it going across, which really freaked us out because we were like, if they can do that, they can put nukes up there. Um, so we got really scared. Um, 
And that was, I guess, the start of the space race. That was when, I think, like, the next year or maybe, like, the year before or something, NASA was created. It was originally the NACA, like, the National Something Committee, whatever. But then it became NASA, and its funding got really big all of a sudden. Um, so I guess that's the start of the space race. So I was what, was the, what was the first American foray? The first, like, human American? No, I'm just like, they oh. Sputnik, what was our retaliation? Think, Explorer 1. Yeah. Explorer 1 in 1958. Eleven years before the moon landing, mm-hmm. yeah, that was pretty much the same thing. You know, just we got to get something out there. Say, hey, we can do it too. Yeah, and from there they beat us at everything. Yeah, they beat us in pretty much everything else. Yeah, they had they had the first they had the first satellite, first person. You're did they get a monkey there? Did they even bother the monkey? I don't even know if they bought. They probably didn't bother. Well, the they monkey. they had a uh, Belka and Strelka, the dogs. Oh, the All right, dogs. they had the dogs. Rip, rip the dogs. They did not get the first American. There, there's actually, um, there's actually, <laughs> which is the only thing that matters. There's a, there's a Soviet-era picture book with Yoka and Stilka. Yeah, I remember here. we saw it at the yeah, yeah, yeah. at the, um, the space suit design. That was cool. But the first American in space was Alan Shepard. Alan Shepard. Yes. Yes. Am I not making this up? Okay, I'm not making this up. So there was Gemini. There was Mercury, Gemini, and then there was Apollo. Um, Apollo is the one that everyone knows, but there was a lot of really important stuff that they had to test before they did Apollo. Um, we had literally like not gotten out of the atmosphere, and Kennedy in 1961 was like, "We're going to the moon," and everyone was like, "What the heck?" So, so if we're gonna talk about Apollo, let, let's skip to Apollo. Let's skip Mercury, Gemini, whatever. They don't care. Um, yeah. If we go right to Apollo, people often forget um, the first Apollo mission, Apollo One, was a failure, and it wasn't just a failure in that it didn't complete its mission objective. All three of the astronauts died on the launch pad, never made off the launch pad, and everyone died. So in terms of failures, that's like, you can't get much more of a failure than that uh, mission. Actually, what ended up happening, so there's sort of the common uh, thing that people say about rocket science, is that in order for a mission to go well, everything has to go right. All the millions of different components of the rocket have to go right. And in order for the mission to fail, everyone to die, one of those million things has to go wrong. And that the thing that went wrong that day was um, basically uh, there was a lot of mistakes that they made, the engineers made, the design team made when they were thinking about the life support system. And they, they fixed all of these afterwards. But um, the biggest problem, the biggest mistake that they made is that um, they didn't really want to have to deal with uh, creating both oxygen and nitrogen. Our atmosphere is like 70-something, 72, 70-something percent nitrogen, 20-something yes. percent oxygen. But so, but we only need oxygen to breathe. And they, they thought, let's just produce oxygen. We don't need to bother with nitrogen. That would just add needless confusion. And also, might as well make it atmospheric pressure, right? So they decided to make the cabin 14.7 atmospheric pressure, 14.7 PSI of pure oxygen. And that is a horrible idea for many reasons. They thought it was a fine idea because, you know, 100% oxygen, they'll be like alert or whatever and whatever. Um, <laughs> the issue with that is that at, at 14.7 PSI, pure oxygen, everything burns. Steel will burn. And all it takes is a spark, which there was because there's like loose electrical cables, there's always gonna be a spark. And the entire crew cabin, hours before it was set to launch, completely went up in flames and they all died. So when people talk about Apollo, usually they forget about that. Like the first three astronauts to get in a, in a, in a rocket during the Apollo program, they all died. How did they get 
anyone to agree <laughs> to do another Apollo mission, then why not rebrand? <laughs> That's actually a brilliant question. Thank you, Maya. So the first rocket they went up on was called the Saturn One. Uh, they changed it to the Saturn Five. So they did kind of rebrand. Um, Wait, they changed the first rocket's name to the Saturn V? Or they made the second one and it was called the Saturn V? They made the second one and it was called the Saturn V. Oh, okay. So they made yeah. people think that they did they, I mean, they, they made, like, they actually, real... Like... They made real substantial changes to, like, the design of the oh, rocket. Oh, okay. Like, it's um, not like they had... Okay, so did they have a Saturn two, three, and four, Or did they just skip to Saturn V? I don't actually know. Think, I... Wait, can you look this up if there's a Saturn II rocket? Because... That would be really interesting if they just skipped to Saturn V so that other people would be like, oh, well, they made so many changes. would have been really interesting. Let's see. That is a really good question. Um, Honestly, that's the thing I, could, I would do. Like, you know, like when they say, like, Grill Master 3000, it's not like they had, like, 2,999. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So it went, there was, there was many, every single time they basically flew one of these rockets, they changed something about the design. But usually they, they named it the same thing. So it was the Saturn One until 1966. Then it was the Saturn One B for a while, and then it went straight to the Saturn V. So yeah, there was no Saturn Two, Three, Four. Um, it's kind of funny. Um, so the first flight of the Saturn V, which is the biggest rocket ever made, the one that we always talk about, that was Apollo Four, and that was basically I think it was unmanned too. So they weren't even risking people's lives on this one, and yeah, it was unmanned and it was a test flight. Um, basically, they had developed this whole system, command, service, and lunar modules, uh, which was designed to take two people, send them to the surface of the moon, take another person uh, to orbit the moon. They wanted to test that whole system. And it, it involved a lot of complex um, maneuvers. I was actually talking to Micah about this uh, in JJ's last week. But uh, originally... The plan, the plan that was created by Werner von Braun, who was the head of NASA at the time, was we're going to get in this massive rocket and we're going to fly it all the way to the moon and we're going to land this massive rocket on the moon and then we're going to lift off and go to Earth still in this massive rocket. And everyone thought that was a great idea. And everyone thought that was the only idea and that was the only way that it would work. There's a few problems with that. One, that's horribly inefficient. Because like you, you have a lot of empty mass that you could easily just shed off if you had a staging system that you're not doing. So that's kind of dumb. Also, if you're landing this massive craft on the surface of the moon, there's a lot more problems you got to think about in terms of balancing it correctly, in terms of making sure it doesn't tip over, in terms of you know like if it's 50 feet tall and it's landing on the moon, like you got to have a ladder or something. Like it starts to get weird. An elevator, like I don't know. Um, eventually, there was an engineer. Uh, named John Hobalt, who was working in the Apollo project, who was like, you know what? The only way that we're going to make this work is if we do something called lunar orbit rendezvous, which is basically when you have a few smaller crafts. In this case, it would be the service module attached to the command module and the lunar module. The only way that it was going to work, he said, was if you docked in orbit after landing on the moon. Um, basically, you send it all together, the lunar command service all together to the moon they would all enter orbit around the moon the lunar module would undock with the other two land on the moon take off again and then redock and then they all go back to earth and that made a lot more sense because you could shed a lot of the weight for the staging you were landing in a much smaller craft um, and eventually he's able to convince 
all of NASA that that was the right thing to do, and they changed their minds, and they did that. So Apollo 4 was the first time they got to test all those systems docking. It seemed like a really weird idea, because they had never docked in Earth orbit. And all of a sudden, we're talking about docking 238,000 miles away on the moon, when if something goes wrong, like there's nothing we can do about it, they're all going to die. So it was, it was a big deal. But it worked. Should we keep going, just chronologically through them? I say we leave this as a teaser for the next episode. That if you want to hear all about every Apollo mission ever, including the little-known Apollo uh, 30, then you, not to... <laughs> <laughs> then you should come to the next podcast. It's so uh, little-known that even Henry doesn't know about it. I look forward to being enlightened about Apollo 30. Henry, hit the outro. I don't know how to play anything on the banjo. This is Rocket Science, is the Columbia Space Initiative podcast. Produced by Henry Manelski and David Tibbetts. Executive producers, Natasha Dada and Luke DeCruz. Creative director, Elise Palma. PR director, Anthony Edessa. Audio is mixed by Micah Weiss. Edited by Kate Steiner. Everyone go home. <laughs> <laughs>